morning, everybody. I see a couple visitors here, so welcome if you're um, new to us here. Um, my name is Madison Wyman. I'm a pastoral intern here at Saratoga. Um, I have the opportunity um, to open up Hebrews 9 with you this morning, to learn together with you through this. Um, last week, you, um, if you were here, you would have known that he, um, TJ, sorry, TJ brought the word from Hebrews 8, and he told us and taught from that passage, saying Jesus Christ is the high priest of a better covenant, and that covenant is better because it's founded on better promises. And I wanted to reiterate those promises very quickly. The first one is that we can experience true heart change. The second is that we can have a close and intimate relationship with God. And the third one, if I have to switch mics, let me know. If the third one is that God forgives our sins to the uttermost. Now those three promises will echo throughout the rest of Hebrews, and they'll also be prominent in our passage this morning. We also heard it said last week that the old covenant is becoming obsolete and ready to pass away. Now remember, that's the old covenant, not the Old Testament. We need both halves of God's revelation to us. When God chose to work in history, he chose to write a story. And he he made a beginning and a middle and an end to that story. And he makes abundant use of foreshadowing in the story that he writes. And we'll find that the shadows of the Old Testament help us perceive the shape of the things that we come to cling to in the New And the new often isn't a a discontinuation or recasting or a retcon of the old, but more a continuation and elaboration and an elevation of the old. So as we read a book like Hebrews, it's written to a church thousands of years ago, but we keep an open ear and an open heart to think about what the author is saying might actually apply to us a lot more closely than we think at first. So I'm going to read our passage for this morning. It's Hebrews 9. We're going to start with the first section of it. That's verses 1 through 10. And if you are able, I'd ask that you um, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It should be on the screen, or you can grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and the earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, and the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. You can have a seat as we pray this morning. Father God, I pray you'd open our hearts and our ears and you'd help us listen and understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we've moved on from the foundations of the New Covenant, those three promises, and we've moved into what it looks like to actually take part in that New Covenant. And the author looks back to the Old Covenant again, both to show us how much better it is, how much better the New Covenant is, but also to convince us, his readers, that this New Covenant's not disconnected with the Old, and that in fact, if we understand the Old Covenant, we can better understand how to live in the New Covenant. So we will spend a little time this morning wrapping our heads around what it was like to live under the Old Covenant. What we've read and what we'll continue to see this morning is that the time under the Old Covenant was a time of regulation. And regulations can be good. They can keep us safe, they can keep society in check, but they can also be restrictive. They can reduce intimacy. You know, built into the Old Covenant are what the author calls regulations for worship in verse 1 and regulations for the body in verse 10. I'm going to cover both of those this morning. The regulations for worship are the detailed instructions giving, given concerning the design of the tabernacle and the regulations surrounding the worship and service of the priests in and around the holy places. The tabernacle was God's own construction. He laid out the plans in painstaking detail. He begins to do this in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. He says, And let them, Israel, make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then he goes on for six chapters in Exodus to lay out the exact detail of how this place should be constructed. And his purpose in being so precise is to create a place where heaven and earth overlap, a place that is exactly to his design, a mini Garden of Eden, if it were. Now, as the author rightly says, we cannot speak of these things in any great detail. But that does rightly imply that there's a lot of detail to be gotten into around this, and not just on the Old Testament side of things, but on the New as well. And if you're curious about that, I'd encourage you to go read Revelation. It is full of these images portrayed in symbolic and powerful and profound ways. But for right now, I'm actually going to walk us through a short video. It should be on the screen behind me in a few seconds, and it's going to help us visualize what the tabernacle looked like. I'll make a few comments as we go through. The first thing we see is that the tabernacle itself, even the courtyard, is separated from the rest of the wilderness by these tents. Now, as we enter into the courtyard, we'll see the altar. Now, this is where the people would bring their sacrifices, either animals or oil and grain. The priests would kill the animals, pouring their blood on the base of the altar, and then burn the flesh on top of the altar. And they were required to keep the altar fire burning at all times. And 
Next, we see a wash basin in which the priests would be required both at their ordination as priests and then every subsequent time they would enter into the tabernacle, they would need to wash themselves. As we enter into the first section of the tabernacle, we see the lampstand on the left, the bread of the presence on the right, and the altar of incense in the middle. The priest would daily eat the bread of the presence as well as many of the animal sacrifices burnt on the, on the altar, as was in some cases commanded. It was also within the ritual duties to keep the lampstand and the altar of incense lit at all times. Finally, we enter into the second section, the section in which God's presence dwells. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat in most translations, but the Hebrew word literally means the place of purging, and the Greek word used is propitiation. Inside are symbols and signs of God's faithfulness to his people and to the keeping of his covenant with them, the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant, manna from God's provision in the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that budded in Numbers 17 to prove that he and his line were chosen by God to mediate the covenant. Now, every aspect of this tabernacle, from the details of the curtains, the materials used, the clothes the priest wore, and the times, days, and specifications for certain sacrifices were all described in painstaking detail. These regulations for worship were defined to create a place where God could dwell with his people, a place that was made exactly to his design. Now, we're going to move on from covering these regulations of worship, these regulations of service, and start to look at regulations for the body. Now, the author seems to have two things in view when he talks about this. He's first talking about the sacrifices made for sin, which we've already talked about a little bit. We'll talk about it more. He's also talking about the general laws of purity, which deal mostly with food and drink and ritual washings. You know, these things were designed to remove ritual impurity so that Israel could remain in God's presence. Now, ritual impurity, as it's understood in the Old Testament, doesn't necessarily imply a moral failing on a specific person. There are abundant examples of people doing things that are not sinful but result in them being ritually impure. For example, most diseases would render one spiritually impure, but it's not sinful to be sick. Certain foods were considered unclean, and eating them would likewise make one unclean. Now, to be sure, sin always results in ritual impurity, but ritual impurity does not always mean that you have sinned. So what is ritual impurity? Well, there are things in this world that are outside of God's design. That's an easy definition definition of sin, by the way, something outside of God's intent, outside of his design. And those things are not are often not direct results of human action, but are the effects of living in a world that is infected and polluted by sin. Anytime that touches somebody, they become ritually impure. God is the author and the creator of life. And to deviate from that plan, from that design, in any way, is to cut off 
life or to create death. Sin leads to death. Anything outside of God's design or God's plan leads to death. So when one would become ritually impure, either by their own sin or by the sin around them, they would need to be purified. This was done both with ritual washings and the giving of sacrifices. Now, let's just acknowledge for a moment that animal sacrifice is a weird thing. We don't really, we don't see it too often nowadays. We don't really practice it. And we don't really have a concept for it. And it's hard with our mechanistic, scientific, enlightenment understanding of the world to realize how this does anything, why this even matters. We can't really find sin under a microscope. But it is real. God's often more of a poet than we would care to admit, isn't he? It's a symbolic truth that underlies the sacrificial system, but it's as true as anything that we can understand in any other way. That symbolic truth is this, that blood is life. In Leviticus 17.1, God says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. When you have a life, an animal life, and you drain it from an animal, that liquid life takes sin onto itself. If the result of sin is death, then the animal dies instead of you for the sin in and around you. Right? The, sin, the result of sin has to be death. So something has to die. But sin is less like a stain on a carpet and more like a hungry parasite. Animal sacrifices can work for a while, but sin's not an inactive thing. It's a living and a bloodthirsty animal. It's a beast that lives inside of us. It's part of us. It feeds on our life parasitically. The life of innocent animals can satiate it for a while, but never permanently. Now, if sin lives inside of us, it's no question why God sets up these boundaries to his presence. God will not compromise his holiness, his set-apartness, by compromising his design. But further, these boundaries are in place for our protection. God's not scared of sin. But if his eternal life were to come into contact with sin, it would destroy it. And if sin is part of us, which it is, it would destroy us too. That's why we see these levels of security, as it were. But these levels of protection result in a lack of intimacy. The place where God dwelled, that second section that we saw, was only accessed once a year. And that by one person, the high priest. At that time, the priest would offer sacrifices. This is on the Day of Atonement. He would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices he had made onto the place of purging, right onto the mercy seat, to purify it from Israel's sin so the people could remain in God's presence, or at least it could remain near to them. This is in Leviticus 16, 19 is where we hear about this. It says in He, the high priest, 
shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Think about that for a second. The very place where God's presence was to dwell had to be purged every year to make sure that the place wasn't defiled and his presence wasn't driven away. There's no intimate relationship here. It's distant. But it was a distance distance necessary if the relationship was to continue in any way. Put this in perspective of your relationships. Have you ever had to set boundaries in a relationship? Maybe someone has hurt you, a close friend, or someone otherwise close to you. They've hurt or betrayed you, and you need space until they can come to repentance and your heart can heal. You need to set boundaries. You need to make space. Maybe a parent or a parent-in-law has encroached too far into your life as an adult, and you need to set boundaries and say, hey, this is, this is the boundary of this relationship. Maybe your children have been rebellious and defiant to a point where you need to clearly say that, hey, this action is not appropriate and there will be consequences. These boundaries are necessary for the relationship to continue in a healthy way, but they do decrease the intimacy of the relationship, don't they? After setting these boundaries, we don't necessarily feel as close to these people, do we? So it is with God's people. However, boundaries in a relationship are not meant to be permanent unless in the most serious, sorrowful circumstances. The goal of setting boundaries is hopefully to bring the relationship to a place of intimacy, where intimacy can be restored. That's God's plan. The the restoration of intimacy with his people. In the times of regulation were only imposed until the time of Reformation. And finally, we get to the second half of our passage this morning. It's Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. I'll read that for you. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I had to cut a lot of this next section of my sermon because there's so much that you can get into here. So much. Jesus is acting as our high priest. He mediates a covenant with us But he does not do so the way the high priests of the old covenant did. He enters into the heavenly tabernacle. 
This is the place the earthly tabernacle was meant to represent and overlap with. He's just coming in from the other direction. There, he sprinkles not the blood of a goat or a bull, but his own blood on the place of purging, the mercy seat. That blood was the same blood poured out on the cross where he died. When he died, he jumped down the throat of the beast that is sin, and his life, his eternal life, destroys that beast and drives away death forever. We'll sing this often in one of our songs here at Terranova. He has defeated death and trampled over sin. In doing so, he frees us from the need to be continually purified, offering sacrifice after sacrifice to atone for sin upon sin. He entered into that place once for all, purifying us once for all. Do you know what that means? It means that whatever sins you've committed, whatever sins you are committing, whatever sins you will commit, have no power over you. They have no claim on your life. Jesus has purchased that by his blood. That thing you're struggling with, whatever it is, that habit you can't kick, that guilt or shame that you carry, they have no claim on you. They have no power over you. Jesus has secured for you an eternal redemption. Eternal meaning into eternity, but also meaning of immense power and significance now. Its quality now is eternal. More than that, he restores intimacy in our relationship with God. In the new covenant, we are... (laughs) I missed the emphasis on that one, and it is important. In the new covenant, we are the holy places. God lives in us. Throughout God's story, the heavenly tabernacle has overlapped with different places throughout time. First, it overlapped with Eden. Then, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then, in the temple in Jerusalem. And now, as was his original intent, in the hearts of his people, those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. His presence dwells inside of us. Forget about boundaries and regulations. Where the high priest would sanctify the mercy seat, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that God's presence can dwell in us, and the promise is that he will continually do that for the rest of your life. He is reforming you reforming you, his tabernacle, into the original intention of his creation, more and more, day by day, glory to glory. He is restoring you to the original intent, the original design that he had for you. True heart change, boundless intimacy, and complete forgiveness of sins. In short, eternal redemption. We take communion every week here. And I want to remind us why we do this ritual. It is 
perhaps the closest thing that we have to the rituals in the Old Testament. The wine and the juice are a symbol of the blood of the new covenant that has purified and is sanctifying you. The bread reminds us that the work of Christ as our high priest and the Holy Spirit as our intimate ally continually sustains us like manna in the wilderness. It reminds us of God's presence and faithfulness to us in this new covenant that he has made with us. I've made sure that this sermon was shorter than usual so that we could spend some extra time this morning preparing our hearts for the experience of that reality. Our passage reminds us that as long as the first section is still standing, which the author says is symbolic for the present age, the path to this intimacy, this heart change, this forgiveness is not yet open. Now, of course, when the author was writing, the high priest was still doing high priest stuff. He was still offering sacrifices, doing his service. He was still active. He had a name, and everyone knew what it was. So the author has that in view. But I want to invite you this morning to consider before God if you have in some way reformed the first section of the tabernacle instead of entering into the second section as is, as is your calling? Is there some unconfessed sin or some sin pattern in your life that continually puts up a wall between you and God's presence? Is your life arranged in such a way that you are worshiping and serving something other than God? And what changes would you need to make to fix that? Are you trying to atone for your own sins by working really hard, <laughs> believing that you can do it by yourself? You just can't. How could you approach God this morning with humility and acknowledgement of this? Take some time with these questions. You'll have a few minutes. Reflect, repent, and return, perhaps for the first time, to God's presence this morning. He's ready to receive you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning, understanding your word and knowing it deep in our souls, Lord, knowing what it means, knowing what we ought to do in light of it. I pray you would make things clear to us, that you would reveal things to us, and that you would ultimately restore our joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.